It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Why you shouldn't try to repay student loans early. We get a masterclass from Mr. Money-Saving Expert, Martin Lewis. The things no estate agent will ever tell you about buying a leasehold property and a moral dilemma for wealthy parents, should you tell your children how much you're worth. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, and I'll be giving you the week's money news in downloadable form. Does it make financial sense to try and pay off your child's student loan? The average graduate leaves university with around £44,000 in debt, according to the IFS. With rising inflation set to swell the value of their debts further still, it's only natural for parents to want to help. But this is the wrong instinct, says Martin Lewis, founder of the Money Saving Expert website, who joins me on the line now. Martin, welcome to The Money Show. Parents listening will no doubt be relieved to hear that you think helping pay back student loans early is generally a bad idea. Why is this? What you have to understand is the price tag and the commonly discussed numbers about student loans are an absolute load of nonsense for most people. Okay. The fact that you have £9,000 tuition fees each year and then a maintenance loan, five, £6,000, and you have £44,000 when you leave University of Debt, it's just meaningless because what counts here is what you repay, and that is set at 9% of everything you earn above £21,000, and you repay for 30 years, and then it's wiped. Of course, if you were to clear everything you borrowed, plus the interest within the 30 years, and you repay 9% of everything you earn above £21,000 for 30 years, or until you clear what you borrowed plus the interest. And that's the crucial thing to think about here. And when you actually look at the numbers, most students won't ever stop repaying. They will repay for 30 years regardless because they won't earn enough to clear the debt within that time. So then you have to look at why on earth would you clear this in the first place? So let's take a really obvious scenario that's not that realistic, but it helps explain it. If your student offspring were to leave university and go and work for Medicine Sans Frontières in Africa on £15,000 a year, they would never have to repay a penny of their student loan. So if you'd paid it up front for them, it would have been a completely flaccid move because it wouldn't have had any change on them. They still wouldn't have had to repay anything. What if they'd earned a little bit more than that? Well, if you earned around £25,000, let's say, well, actually, they still wouldn't clear their original borrowing in real terms. So if you'd paid for them, you would have paid more than they would ever need to repay. So if we look at this in financial priorities, you know, the only people who really should be paying up front are either those who 
know their student offspring are going to be seriously high earners. I'm talking starting salaries, 35 to 40,000 pounds, and then above inflation rises for the rest of their 30-year career, probably without taking any career breaks. So, you know, you're talking city professionals mm. or those who have so much cash, millions of cash that they're able to buy them a house and buy them whatever else they want, in which case you might want to just clear it because it doesn't matter. But then really, you know what, you've probably got other financial priorities and decisions anyway. Because it's worth contrasting this to a mortgage, which is a much more pressing financial priority for most young people. The rates are roughly similar. The interest rate on student loans are inflation plus 3% while they're a student, and then depending on their earnings between inflation and inflation plus 3% after they graduate. But the big difference is with a student loan, if you lose your job, if you have a low income, well, you either don't repay or you only repay in proportion to your income. Under £21,000, you don't repay. With a mortgage, lose your job, you've still got to repay it. So the terms are much more onerous. And the biggest financial challenge facing most young people is getting a deposit for a house. It isn't repaying their student loan. That's far closer to a form of tax. And actually, if you've got money for your kids, the one other thing that they'll struggle with, my biggest problem with the student loan system, is that the loans aren't big enough because the living loans, in many cases, hardly even cover the accommodation costs. So put your money towards that. And in fact, if I had to take this a step further, sure. actually, I believe we should rename these. They are not loans in any traditional sense. And the language of debt is actually a really dangerous one. It miseducates young people about how these debts work, and it inures them to other types of borrowing that are far more dangerous. In other countries, they call our income contingent loan system a graduate contribution. And renaming it a graduate contribution would make it easier, because this is the practical reality. And that's a really important psychological concept, because if you said to a parent, if your child is successful enough, that they will repay a higher rate of tax, are you saving up to pay their tax bill for them, they would laugh you out of school. But when you say you're saving up to pay their student loan for them, even though in reality it is, in, in practical financial terms, it works like a tax, they all have these worried looks on the face, and that's simply because we call it a debt. But it isn't a debt like any other. I can't tell you how many parents say to me, but what happens if they don't earn a lot? How on earth will they repay this? They never pay well, they back. won't. Exactly. And so we have to have a total brain change when we think about the student loan system. And that's why most parents should not be trying to pay it up front. In summary, give them some money towards their living expenses and start putting it towards a deposit for a house or even a car loan if they need one afterwards. It's a far better use of their money. And even if you think they're going to be really high earning, Actually, I wouldn't take the risk of paying it up front. You can repair it at any time. I would put it in as high an interest savings account as you can get while they're a student. Okay, yes, they'll be paying interest currently at 6.9%. Okay, you'll take that hit and hopefully it'll be offset by the interest you earn in the savings account. Because only once they graduate, they may have a complete change of path while they're a student. Will you have an idea of what career they will get? And so we just have to be very careful. The language needs to change. I've met... Joe Johnson and I have talked to government ministers saying we need to change this language. I used to be head of the Independent Task Force on Student Finance Information. This is a really bad way to communicate student finance and we need to change it. It's time we bit the bullet and rename this the graduate contribution system. If you earn enough when you leave university, you contribute. If you don't earn enough, you don't contribute. Financially, it's a no-win, no-fee system. And that's a far better explanation than calling it a loan.
Well, thanks very much there to Martin Lewis, founder of MoneySavingExpert.com. You can read the full article about student loans and why you shouldn't try and repay early on our website now for free at ft.com slash student loans. Coming up, should you tell your children how much you earn? Before that, are you thinking of buying a house? If it's a leasehold flat, you might want to read the forthcoming FT Money Guide to what estate agents will rarely tell you about leasehold properties before you do so. Lindsay Cook, its author and our Money Mentor columnist, joins me now in the FT studio to tell us about the questions you must ask before you buy and how existing leaseholders can stand up for their rights. Lindsay, welcome to The Money Show. Good morning. Well, you found that leaseholds are growing at unprecedented levels and that the annual service charges that leaseholders have to pay are surprisingly expensive. Well, 95% of new builds in London last year were leasehold. Now, most of those will be flats. And then the new properties have the highest service charges. The average is £2,777 a year, which is quite a lot. But when you think there's one property on the market at the moment has 160000 a year service charge, but there are concierge and gyms and things like Swimming that. Swimming pools, very yes, expensive to yes. maintain. And, and the service charge is essentially something in a block of flats where the communal services of the building will be maintained, probably by a managing agent on behalf of the freeholder. But buyers are not generally aware of their rights and estate agents are not the people who are going to tell you about them. So what would you say to people thinking of buying a leasehold flat are the three most crucial questions they should ask? Well, I think they should start asking questions from day one. The estate agents will never have the information. I've got a case recently. As the person put in their offer, they said, is there a sinking fund and what what does the service charge cover? They didn't find out any information until the day they were about to exchange because nobody would give them it. Solicitors were back and forth. So there is an absence of information. But also, very important, if you're buying a leasehold property, if it's a flat and it's got under 83 years to remain on the lease, that's very dangerous because If you want to lengthen or extend the lease, you've got to do it. You've got two years before you have the right to do it. After the lease is below 80 years, it costs you a lot more because the value of the flat goes down the shorter the lease is. So it really needs to be 83 years and above to be able to... um, use your right to extend your lease by 90 years. And what is a sinking fund? I hadn't heard this expression before. A sinking fund is part of the service charge and it's to cover big bills like replacing the lifts, replacing the roof, you know, painting the whole of the outside of the building. If you have people coming in and out of ownership of the flats, Mm -hmm. if you're there when the big bill lands, you get a disproportionate cost. And so normally, or usually, they put so much per year into a sinking fund and then when the big bill comes, you don't have a shock. Unfortunately, if you bought a property that was formerly a council property, they're not allowed to run sinking funds. So you may have major refurbishment, new lifts, a whole lot, and you can have enormous bills. There's some people in Oxford at the moment are facing bills of 50,000 on their flats that they bought from right-to-buy buyers. Well, your research has also found many instances where the managing agents who collect the service charges on behalf of the freeholders or the landlords are the source of the problems. Is there any hope on the horizon for leaseholders in terms of tougher regulation? A new code has been brought in, England and Wales, under the Royal Institution of Charter Surveyors. It goes some way, 
but we need more. The Association of Residential Management Agents wants statutory legislation. Wow. In Scotland, there is legislation. Managers must be fit and proper persons. They must register. So there are controls. Here, it's going to take a bit longer. There's a little bit of an interest. There are a lot of people who are freeholders who can pay very expensive lawyers to um, keep the rights to their freeholds. Well, the conclusion is that customer service needs to improve and buyers should read our article and go into any transactions on a leasehold property with their eyes open. Thanks very much there to Lindsay Cook, the FT's money mentor. You can read her full piece, What Estate Agents Will Never Tell You About Leasehold Flats, online from Friday at ft.com slash money or in FT Weekend, available from all good news agents from Saturday. Finally, Jason Butler, the FT's wealth man columnist, is not unusually lost for words, but a recent question from his daughter had him stumped. Jason, welcome to the FT Money Show. Hello. What did she ask and why were you reluctant to give her a straight answer? She wanted to know basically what my wife and my net worth was. And I really, it was a bit of a left beam. Uh, she's always asking questions because I've always encouraged her to do so. But it was such a left beam sort of question. How much are you worth? Because actually it wasn't just about uh, the money, because I've got different views about wealth, because I think it's not just the money you've no. got. It's also the connections you have, your reputation, your ability to do good things in the world. So it wasn't just about me being guarded about my privacy and about how she might view me just giving her a number. But it was also about really the definition of wealth. And so it got me thinking when I was obviously doing this column was just saying, if we just talk about it from the money point of view, and obviously uh, there's a limit to the space that I have to discuss it in any article, but I was thinking to myself, well, if I answer this just binary about money, how will she react? How will she, what impact will it have on her? What, why does she need to know? And then I thought, well, why am I having these problems? Why don't I just tell her? Because, we, you know, we've been very open about talking about sex and relationships and business and yeah. careers. My children so, know how much I earn. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't even, I told her how much I earned when I used to have a job. And she sort of seemed that was okay. But talking about your net worth is something I think even more excruciating than talking about your sex life. Because it really, for many people, it defines, you know, I'm 47. So, you know, should I have done better than I have now? Have I done fabulously better than would be expected to do, given my upbringing, my Will background? the money last? Will, hang on. It sounds it may sound like a lot of money to some people, but then, you know, they don't perhaps have the same kind of um, lifestyle and cost that I have. So I don't know. It's a difficult one. And, and particularly British people. I mean, I've just come back from New York last month and they talk about money. Every they've talked about anyone about their money. You can't stop them. So I think there's a whole host of issues. There's the cultural thing. There's our need to realise where money fits into our sense of sense of worth and identity. There's the relationship that we have between our children. And of course, when you hear that children, uh, young people have got real challenges, I say in my article, you know, you can actually see a lot of tension rising with adult children when they see their parents who are living longer and longer swanky cars. A friend of mine who's 67 just bought an Audi A7. Uh, these great big ridiculous cars. And he said, well, I can't have one now. Why not? And it cost him £50,000. But of course, the children might be thinking, well, we could make use of that now and have a lower mortgage. So it's quite a complicated area. Well, certainly there are already nearly 70 comments on your column online. And many FT readers think that if you do give your children money, it's better to do it early when they're young and they can still enjoy it rather than waiting until you might pop your clogs, which hopefully won't be for a while yet. But 
you have maybe a different view about that. Well, I've made it very clear with the children. We've always, my wife and I have always talked about charitable giving. We've always explained that we do uh, this in a planned way. We've always encouraged them to give up some of their uh, the money that they've accrued from you know birthdays and what have you. And they give a pound and we give 10. Um, we've always got them to think about saving. So if they save a pound, we save 10. And that is unfortunately getting a little bit unsustainable as they're getting older. <laughs> so we might have to rethink that. But so we've And we've always talked to them about their money that we've saved for their start in the, in the life. And so I think perhaps I shouldn't be so hard on my own self because we've always discussed this and they know that obviously my whole job has been around about money. But I don't want it to be the dominant force in their life. And just to sort of finish this one off, many middle class parents and affluent parents have a very set idea about what they want their children to do, career mm. or earnings. And I don't. And we were at Cambridge recently and the two tutors said, well, there's a session you can go for for, for parents. And I said, well, what's that for? I said, well, that's if you've got any questions and concerns. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, about what kind of career she might do. I said, well, I don't have any view either. It's her life. All I want her to do is have a great education. She makes the decision. And that's really the point she said is that, OK, Dad, you've opened the door for me in terms of opportunity and support uh, and helped me through uni. I now need to walk through it and decide where I want to go. And that's really ultimately what you want your children to do, to be motivated, to be respectful and to see money as a force for good, but not let it dominate their life. So, again, I encourage people to speak frequently, early, get children involved in financial decisions whether you want to tell them exactly what your net worth is, well, I'll leave that to you to make your own decision. Well, thanks very much there to Jason Butler, the FT's Wealth Man columnist. You can read his column, Talking to Your Children About Money, now on ft.com money. There's just time to tell you what we'll be writing about in this weekend's issue of FT Money. I will examine the 18.5 million FTSE boardroom bargain hunt as directors take advantage of the post-Brexit dip in stock markets to buy shares in their own companies. And as usual, we'll have share tips and directors deals from the Investors Chronicle. That's it from the FT Money Show this week. Thank you very much to my contributors. Same time next week. Goodbye. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you might like to try our FT News podcasts which focus on one of the main issues of the day and bring you the insights and expertise of our global network of journalists, as well as outside contributors. You can download these at ft.com podcasts most days of the week. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Selling a little? Or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.